Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get auto loan rates as low as 1.04% APR for 36 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Eddie Trunk here with you for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday. You know the deal, podcastone.com, Apple Podcasts, and now available on Spotify. You get those new episodes every Thursday. Be sure to listen, subscribe so you get every one. You don't miss out on anything and appreciate you guys doing so. And thank you for being here for another mega Eddie Trunk Podcast with a tremendous guest Podcast being brought to you by our good friends at Goodies Headache Powder. Check out their brand new product, Goodies Hangover. It'll help you through those rough mornings after. If you've been doing some drinking, be sure to check it out. Goodies Hangover, brand new product from Goodies. There's Fast and there's Goodies Fast. Check out Goodies Hangover, available at Walmart, Amazon, and any other fine retailers. And uh, we appreciate Goodies hooking us up and being a sponsor of the podcast. So this week, something different. Because you are used to me telling you guys each and every week that this podcast is bringing you interviews that originated on my Sirius XM radio show. And this week, I'm doing something very unique because the interview you are going to hear this week did not originate on my SiriusXM radio show. It originated right here for this podcast. It is a very rare podcast-exclusive interview, and it is a long one. For you guys that like in-depth conversations, this one today clocks in at more than 90 minutes long, and it is with Steve Gorman, original and co-founding member of the Black Crows, who was there through it all with the Black Crows, and now a former member of the Black Crows. He is no longer in the band, but he was on all of the classic stuff right up until uh, the breakup of the band. So 
I had a chance to read Steve's book, which is called The Life and Death of the Black Crows, or I don't I don't have it right in front of me, but hold on, I should probably have that name right. Um because I I have the book, but it's not sitting right in front of me, but it's a a little bit of a long version of the title. The title the version of the title is a bit long. Okay, here it is. The book is called Hard to Handle the Life and Death of the Black Crows. And it was written by, as I said, their drummer, Steve Gorman, who I don't know at all until this interview you are about to hear. Now, I'm a little late to the party on this book because it it came out, I guess, about a year ago. It has just been released on softcover, but it it came out uh, maybe a little under a year ago. And I had heard from so many people that the book was great. And I, like everybody, have been in quarantine and pandemic times, and we're all sort of on different schedules than we normally are. So I had the opportunity to spend a little more time reading lately. And I picked this book up, took it to the beach, and I could not put it down. As a matter of fact, I it was one of those things where I wanted to finish it really quickly, but then I didn't because I wanted something to look forward to the next day. That's how good the book is. And even if you're not a huge Black Crows fan, it is such a compelling read because everybody knows that the Black Crows uh, had a great deal of dysfunction, a lot of fighting between the brothers. But Steve Gorman was there through all of it. And he takes you on a journey from the formation of the band through all the drama, through all the stuff with Jimmy Page, right through the breakup of the band. And here's the thing, you know, a lot has been made about some of the stuff said in this book, and you'll hear me bring this up with Steve in the interview. I did not read this book coming away liking the Black Crows any less. I didn't come out of it saying, oh, those Chris and Rich Robinson, real dicks or anything like that. I really didn't. If you think about it throughout history, these sort of tell-all books that come out, if anything, they bolster the band's reputation, if you will, uh, interest, draw level. I mean, look, look at what it did for Motley Crue with their book or Aerosmith for their book. So, you know, we all know that th- th- there's a level of ego and drugs and fighting and in the Black Crows instance, the brothers and all that. But this, none of it was shocking to me. It's incredible. It's an incredible read and to read from Steve's perspective what happened. But it, it if anything, it made me even more interested in the band. And after reading the book, I went and started seeking out stuff on YouTube and got even more into it. So I think it's an incredible read. Um, I get into a lot of it with Steve in the interview you're about to hear. And what happened was, you know, Steve had made the rounds doing all the publicity for this book since it had been out for a little bit. And because I only got a chance to read it, I don't like to interview people until I've had a chance when they put out books and I've had a chance to read the book. Because obviously, you know, you want to be able to know what you're talking about and talk about the book itself. So I was late to the party in reading it. And the reason why this is a podcast exclusive is because Steve had already made the rounds at Sirius XM doing promotion for this when it initially came out. So at this point, it didn't 
more my fault because I was late to the party on it. It didn't make sense to present this as a radio interview. But I was adamant about talking to Steve about the book because I thought the book was so great. So I reached out, told him that this was going to be predominantly for my podcast. And would he like to do it? And he said, yeah. And we had a great conversation about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, that you're about to hear in its entirety of over 90 minutes talking about this book and the history of the Black Crows. This is a must listen if you are a fan of this band and if you were a fan of this book, if you read it, uh, you're going to love what's in here. And if you didn't read it, you're probably going to be compelled to want to read it. Like I said, it was just released also on paperback. So, you know, we get into a lot here. We don't even get into even close to most of it because even with 90 minutes, there was so much to peel apart. And, you know, Steve is, a, as you're about to hear, a great guy, very open. Nothing was off the table. And, uh, you know, I felt like I knew him. I felt like we did stuff before in the past, but this was my first conversation ever with him, as you're about to hear. So instead of the usual all interviews you're about to hear, courtesy of, this one is a podcast exclusive, only heard and delivered here in its entirety on the Eddie Trunk podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. I enjoyed talking to Steve. Hope to do more with him down the line. And I, I can't recommend the book more highly before we get to the interview social media you know the deal at eddie trunk twitter instagram fan page on facebook eddie is the official online home and uh yeah even though this interview didn't happen on the sirius xm show be sure to listen to me if you have sirius or xm and you're in the u.s or canada doing trunk nation talking rock with you every day 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time live with nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern and full shows and interviews on demand on the SiriusXM app. So be sure to check me out on volume on channel 106 each and every day for Trunk Nation. Talk and rock with you live on SiriusXM. Um, what else? A couple other quick things here before we get to the interview just to let you know. Cameo. I haven't mentioned this or promoted it at all, but I thank those that have ordered Cameo videos from me. If you're not aware of what Cameo is, it's personalized video greetings for birthdays and things like that. I went on it, uh, I don't know, five, six months ago, and I've done a bunch for people. They're really fun. It's really cool to do. And I'm not going to lie to you, a couple extra bucks doesn't hurt, especially with what's going on in the world these days and you know, taking some hits here and there. So if you are so compelled and you are interested in getting a personalized video greeting from me for someone as a gift or goof or whatever it may be, uh, go over to Cameo and find my profile. Just put my name in the search bar and you'll see all the info pop up. I believe it's Cameo.com. And a little tip, if you're going to order, do it directly on Cameo site versus through an app because it's five bucks cheaper if you do it directly at cameo.com. So thank you to those who have ordered. And uh, if you are interested in ordering, do it through their site and uh, make you a fun little video greeting to whoever you'd like. So that's pretty cool. There's a merch store on eddytrunk.com. Check it out, Trunk Nation stuff and other cool shirts and things like that. If you are so inclined and interested, 
Be sure to have a look when you get a chance. And check my site. Music News is updated daily as well on the site. And if you become an All Access member, you can listen to my FM radio show on demand whenever you'd like. So I think that kind of covers it for the open. We will come back, and I think, can't promise you, because Katie puts this all together for me, but we're probably going to sail straight through for over an hour and a half with Steve Gorman of the Black Crows. You guys are going to love this. Coming up on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Coming to Live by Live, Thursday, July 30th, Darius Rucker's Darius and Friends Virtual Concert, benefiting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Catch an exclusive one-time-only performance by Darius Rucker live from the Grand Ole Opry stage, featuring guest appearances by Clint Black and Tracy Lawrence. All proceeds from the show benefit St. Jude, so get your tickets today at livexlive.com slash Darius, and tune in July 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on Live by Live. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, it's Eddie Trunk, and I got to tell you, uh, you know, I get so many rock autobiographies sent my way, and, you know, some of them are good, some of them not so good, some of them I start reading, I put down, and I'm like, ah, I'm good with that. And this one was, as they say in the business, the proverbial page turner. I was absolutely riveted by this book. I loved it from start to finish. I couldn't put it down. I know it's been out for a little bit, but uh, you can always get the word out still. This book is called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. And it is written by the Black Crows drummer, Steve Gorman, who joins me right now. Steve, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to do this. You know, I find that... Uh, people promote books real hard, like the first couple weeks that they're out, and then some people get around to reading them late, like I do. So it never hurts to give it another spin. So I appreciate you taking the time. Oh man, no worries. Thank you. I I never looked at it as a uh, you know it's not a single for radio. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, I don't know when I don't have my second book started yet, so it's not exactly like I'm uh, hurrying through this one. No, this I think I got one book in me, and this is it. So. I'll be talking about it for a while. Well, you had told me just before we started rolling the recording here that this book, when you actually wrote it, was originally more than double the amount of pages that it came out as. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was close to three times, actually. It was, uh, well, I guess it's 350, and I turned in just under 950. So, yeah, um, two and a half times at least. Well, and it was great because my deadline was Halloween of 18. And I turned it in on that day, you know, not one day too soon. And I sent it in to the publisher and he wrote back immediately like, oh, man, great work. You did it. Congratulations. It's awesome. And 10 minutes later, after he had opened the file, his next email was, what the fuck is this? (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with you? What are you crazy? Like, I didn't think about things like this, for example, the cost of printing a 900 page book. (laughs) You know what I mean? He goes, He goes, what, do you want to sell a book for $80? And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's how this works. It's not unlike records. You know, I basically, I wrote a triple album out of the gate. And he was like, yeah, too much, bud, too much. Well, you could have done, well, well he, here's the thing for me, like, 
So hearing that is, and having done a couple books myself, not an autobiography, I'm, I'm still working on that, but having done a few, I know about that editing process and it can be agonizing as an author because you feel like everything you put in there is really good and should be included and is a big part of the story. So did you leave it to them to do the tough cuts or did you have to dig into it and really do some self-editing? Well, Eddie, to that point, I believe I'm the first person who said, this is 950 pages of pure gold. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, No, well, see, that's my partner, Stephen Hyden. Um, The simplest way to describe what he did was I I wrote the songs and he produced the album. Mm -hmm. And, And what I mean by that is we got together ahead of time and we just established a timeline together. Like I, we talked it through. I have a very linear chronological memory. And we started with me moving to Atlanta and he just led me like breadcrumbs through the whole story. And we were, it was just conversations where we recorded my telling of the, the arc. Like this happened and this and then this and then this. So I had, so we put together like 40 chapters of my, my audio breadcrumbs for me to then use to go write the story just to keep me on a, on a linear path in writing. And so that was hugely important. And then, but I went, and then I went and wrote the thing. And then when it was all said and done, as I was finishing chapters, I'd send them to Steven. And he was aware of the fact as I was writing it, this is way longer than anybody's expecting and probably way longer than anyone's going to want to publish. So in his mind, he was, I think, already paying attention to the overall narrative arc and looking at things that don't necessarily move the story along. They might be funny or they might be crazy, but they don't keep the momentum going. So he had a really good overview from the minute I finished already in his head of what he thought could probably come out if need be. And that was hugely important for me because when they told me, go away and edit it, um, you know, the editor said, I'm not going to edit this. You'll hate me. Like you guys got to take the first pass. And so Stephen Hyden was huge in that because he was able to speak to me, talk me off of my perch of, but this is a blockbuster, brilliant book, you know? And he said, no, hang on. These six stories are great, but four of them are all kind of similar. You know what I mean? They're telling the same, in the grand scheme of things, you're kind of repeating themes and the reader doesn't need that. The readers, you know, give the reader credit. They, they know who the characters are real soon and they get your humor. They get where you're being self-deprecating. You don't have to keep going to those wells, blah, blah, blah. But he was instrumental in making me see where we could go. And I mean, it could have been edited a million different ways, but we, we came to this one really pretty quickly. You know, I mean, within a month or two, we had basically what you're reading. And then it was a matter of just the copy editing, which is where you pick every sentence apart, make sure that the tent, you know, and I'm a grammar jerk, you know, I'm a real nerd for that stuff. So I, I actually enjoyed tearing apart my own stream of consciousness writing and making sure the verb tenses all matched up and all that kind of stuff. Well, I got to tell you, he did a, he did a brilliant job, as you said, because one of the things that I think makes the book such a a fun and easy read is it just the way it flows. It is linear. You get right into it. There's not a lot of preamble to the mm-hmm. stuff you want to get to. And it no. just it just, you know, it just I mean, so many of these books, the first, you know, first quarter, I kind of find myself gl- glossing over because I'm like, and let's get to when he's in the band, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, and, and, and that's, that's one of the things that that was, you know, the many things that was so, so great about this. So when did it first, 
and and to my knowledge, I could be wrong on this, Steve, but you're the first member of the Black Crows to write a book like this, right? Or or former yeah. member. When, when yeah, did, absolutely. When did, it, when did the idea first come on your radar to do this? What was the impetus to say, uh, I got to tell this story? Um, you know, it was always a it was always a half joke to say I was going to write the book one day. Um, it always seemed to be like if anybody was going to, it would be me. That was something that goes back to the early 90s. You know, in the band, it would be like, if anyone's ever going to write the book, it's got to be Steve. And my line forever was, well, I'd write the book, but nobody would believe it. And that always got a laugh, but I was always dead serious. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is, this is, this is just too, too, too unbelievable to me as it was happening at times in ways both good and bad. But I, I actually, I started writing in 2010 and I lasted all of three days. The band was going out on tour and I thought at that point this would be our final tour. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to start writing this book and I'm going to write it on the last tour. And that was like impossible. I realized after three days, I, I don't have the right perspective and I'm, I'm just way too, it, 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 it I, I, it was, I was still playing gigs. I was still in the band. We were still trying to make things work and it was a terrible place to sit and try to reflect from, you know what I mean? It was still too in the thick of it. So that went away. And then when the band sort of exploded in 2014, you know, I, I, if you had asked me then, are you ever going to write this book? I would have said, absolutely no way. I was just too pissed off and I was too embarrassed at how the band ended. You know, the, the idea that it ended over a money grab after so many years, it was just so, it, that's all I felt was embarrassed. Like, I can't believe my band of all the stupid shit. This is, this takes the cake. All this to say, when Eddie Harsh, our piano player for many years, he died at the end of 2016. And, um, that was a, a real, it, it, I wrote, I had a a sports talk radio show at the time and I wrote a eulogy thread and I opened my show with it that night. And literally as I was writing what is essentially a eulogy, I had this thing come over me, which was, I kind of think I could write a book about the band now. It was writing about Ed's death really cemented that everything was settled in my head and in my heart. Like I, I felt very appreciative and full of gratitude and also eternally sad about the story of the black crows. I felt both those things really in equal measure. And I thought this is a good perspective to write the book from because it's a healthy perspective. You know, I'm over the, the, the highs and lows don't impact me anymore. You know, I'm not in love with the band and I don't hate the band. I kind of see it for what it was and I see my part in it. And I can look at all the things I did that were great. And I can look at all the things I did that were terrible. And it all just made sense. And so that was really when it started. By the summer of 17, I called Hyden and I said, hey, man, I, you know, he's been badgering me for years saying, you got great stories. You should write a book. And I called him and said, I think I might actually do this. Do you want to help me? And he said, sure. And off we went. Before we get into some specifics about the book and the whole story here, I'm curious, knowing what you said about uh, having to do so much editing and having to lop off so many stories and pages that you originally included, can you give me maybe one or two of the toughest cuts, like uh, stories that you really wanted out there that you really wish you could have included, or uh, maybe a nugget or two that didn't make the book that you, you could tell the audience about? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, there, there's one, one of the edits, it was actually the easiest edit 
only because it was a whole chapter and it was like a self-contained story. And it was, it's one of the craziest things that we ever went through. And it was when a guy that we knew from the local band days in Atlanta sued us, uh, for something that happened in 1989. And we ended up on court TV for two weeks in 1996. <laughs> oh, is that right? We rehearsed in this, we rehearsed in this guy's basement for three months and he was, he was he he's an English guy and he had been the tour manager for the Georgia Satellites for years. And he met us after we had recorded Shake Your Moneymaker. Uh, our bass player met him and played him the record and he loved it. And he was a great immediate fan and he had been on the road for years with the satellites, so he knew the industry. Like he was a made man. He was a tour manager who'd been all over the world a few times. And he he asked us to come to his house one night and he said, Look, the satellites are done for the year. My basement is their rehearsal. I got a PA. I got everything you need. I love the record so much. I, if you guys need a place to rehearse, you can use my basement. And that began, you know, it's like, uh, it was basically the Venus flytrap was opening up and here we came, you know, like, Hey, this guy's giving us his basement for free with a great PA and he's got beer and weed and what could be better. <laughs> and, uh, long story short, um, he offered to manage us. We said, no but we offered him our tour manager job, which he accepted begrudgingly because he really wanted, he saw us as his chance to become a real big shot manager, but he wasn't that kind of guy. And we even, we knew that we found Pete Angelus, who's a great manager and it all boiled to a head. He was pushy and pushy and we had kind of gotten a little tired of him pressuring us to manage. And long story short, he sued us after the record came out and said that he had played such an integral part in the development of the band and that we had given him a commitment to be a partner with the band. And he was owed one sixth of everything shaker moneymaker earned. Oh. And, and his piece of evidence was a doodle that I wrote on a napkin with a Sharpie that he said was a contract. Well, I know this sounds insane, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. And, and it's so insane. And, to, and when he filed his lawsuit in like 92, we all laughed it off. And then, of course, you know, by 94, we're all in depositions. And by 96, we're literally in court in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's on court TV for two weeks. And it ended with a hung jury. It was the most insane thing. But in the grand scheme of the story of the book, it doesn't, it's just a fascinating story, but it didn't move along. It didn't have any impact in the band's trajectory or interpersonally wise. You know, there wasn't much to say. So it was an easy cut. But that's still as a standalone chapter. I mean, that'll, I'll put that out somewhere someday. Did you, is there a, like if people go on YouTube, is there a video of the black crows on core TV fighting this guy? Oh, hell yeah. There yeah, is. absolutely. I never saw that. Yeah, I got to look at that. That is crazy. Well, well, let, let me, let me ask you some stuff about the early days here. So when I'm reading this book, my, my takeaway here is that when you started, because you, you kind of paint a picture that as a drummer, you were you were barely able to play <laughs> when you first started in, yeah. which is amazing to me. What? But but clarify that a little bit for me because okay. we, yeah. it it sort of sounds like my takeaway from reading the book was almost like you showed up for the audition for the Black Crows or or for you know the early versions of that band, and you literally could not play, but you just sort of figured it out as you went along. Is that off base or is that really how rough you were in the no, beginning? It, well, 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 here's the thing. I, I could play drums. I just hadn't, if that makes sense. Like I knew from an early age, 
from sitting on drum kits that friends had in high school and being an obsessive fan of drummers. Like I, I don't, from the time I was five, I wanted to be a drummer. I just never did anything about it. And the first time I ever started a drum kit in high school, I started playing the kit. Like I could literally play a straight beat, not speed up, not slow down. So I knew that was in me. When I got to college, I met a guy with a kit and I would sit at his kit and I'd play for 15, 20 minutes. And then uh, my brother said, hey, we, you play drums now. Let's have a cover band and we'll play parties. And so we did that six or seven times over three years. And I could literally sit down and we just played Ramones and Clash songs. And you can fake those really easily. So it's just a straight beat, depending on how fast or slow we wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. But the whole time I was doing that, and I'm goofing around and I'm acting like I'm not taking it seriously, but I was in my head, I was obsessively thinking, I got to do this. This is all I've ever wanted to do. I've got to do this. So when I moved to Atlanta to start a band with friends of mine, this is not what turned into the Black Crows. This was another set of guys. I got there in February of 87. I bought my very first drum kit. I'd never had a kit before. And I started playing. Now, three months after that, I played on a demo for Mr. Crow's Garden with Chris and Rich Robinson for A&M Records. And so when I say I could barely play back then, that, that's it compared to where I am now, sure. But I could play very steady. I had a great feel. I didn't have experience. I wasn't going to play a great swing beat necessarily, but for a really straight rock song, I was as good as anybody. You know what I mean? Like I had that ability right away. So it wasn't like I was inept, but it, but I just didn't have the experience. But you know, by the time we were making shake your money maker, I'd only been playing for two years regularly and it was really stressful. I could do it, but I just hadn't done it before. So it was always, you know, and, and, but, but, you know, not too many drummers like hearing that I've had a kit for two years and then I made Shake Your Moneymaker. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Mm. But, but, you know, so when I say I suck, it's, you know, I'm not, uh, if I, the, the Steve Gorman of 2020, if I'd seen myself playing in 1988, I would have been, once that kid plays, he's good. He doesn't know what he's doing yet, but he's good. I think anybody, and I always had other drummers talk to me right away. They could tell like, oh, this guy's really good. He just hasn't done it enough, you know? So it's kind of, it's kind of both of those. I kind of suck, but I was always going to be okay. And would you say that's a fair assessment of at that point of doing Shake Your Money Maker, pretty much everybody's skills in the band with that particular we all, lineup? I, I think the reason that, that, especially when I started with Chris and Rich in 1987, we were all exactly at the same level. Yeah. And we grew together. And, and then even more specifically, me and Rich, you know, the rhythm section of the band always started with me and Rich as opposed to me and the bass player. Because, you know, when we when he was writing parts, when we were working on songs, it would always be the two of us. And we were learning how to play our instruments individually while doing it together. And so our playing just grew. It, it was inextricable. We were like weeds growing around each other as, as far as how we approached the music that we wrote for years and years. And so there's also an element there where you could point to a lot of drummers and say, technically they can do things Steve Gorman can't do, but, but it'd be hard to put a drummer in the black crows in the nineties that made the band where the band would have made sense the way it did with me, because, you know, music is, it's about chemistry. It's not about, it's not about necessarily skill and talent. It's about what you're doing with those things. And, you know, it's all, to me, bands are all chemistry. I mean, it's 99% of the equation is how do they all mix together? And what we had from an early place, when it was just me, Chris, and Rich, we were all, that was very much locked in from the jump. You know, I, I've been in, in this business almost 40 years now at a, at a lot of different levels. And I remember when 
Shake Your Money Maker first came out. I remember the Black Crows coming on the scene. I remember, uh, to me, it was a breath of fresh air, given what else was going on in the rock scene at that time. But did you get, was there pressure put on you guys to adapt to that scene? The very MTV 80s, you know, hard rock, the look, the image, the vibe. Because the thing that I remember so well about the Black Crows coming out is that, and having me personally, I was very immersed in that scene at the time. But but the thing I remember about it is you guys had a, a, a appeal across the board. So there was a lot of people that liked what the band was doing. You actually attracted fans from that world without catering to it, but also were mm-hmm. coming from clearly coming from a completely different place. I mean, that was obvious to what you sounded like, the way the records were produced, what you looked like, but was it, was right. there a conscious decision or was there anybody sort of pulling the strings behind you kind of cognizant of that and saying, you know, look, we can, we can make, we can cast a pretty wide net here because there's a lot of people finding, things in our music that that's uh, that's appealing to a wide range of rock fans no there really wasn't or if there were i mean if 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 george were styling the band in the studio for the first record george draculius who produced us Mm. if he were doing things with that in mind and if pete angelis our manager ultimately were doing things they were doing it in a way where it always felt like it was our idea so you know, they very well may have been, been steering us in ways, but never overtly and never openly at all. I think if you saw Mr. Crow's Garden in 1988, you would have seen a band that reminded you more of the replacements than the Rolling Stones mm. across the board, how we dressed and what our attitude on stage was. Um, but we were, you know, but George is the guy who, when he first saw that band, he said, you guys actually play like the stones. Like you looked at rich and he said, the way you move your right hand, you're doing yourself a disservice playing in standard tuning. He goes, you're like, you play kind of like Keith Richards and you don't even know it. And of course, rich was like, what are you talking about? And he looked at me and said, stop pushing the beat. When you pull back on the beat, you have a great groove and you aren't even taking advantage of it. I mean, George really just opened our eyes to our own strengths that we hadn't figured out yet. And then as far as visually and stylistically, like when we made our first record in the summer of 89, like to your point, we didn't sound like Skid Row. That was a brand new band that was taken over MTV that summer. You know, Guns N' Roses was a couple years in. We didn't sound like that. We didn't sound like Poison. We didn't sound like The Crew. You know, all of those bands that were considered rock bands, we, we didn't sound like them and we wanted nothing to do with them. Um, but then again, we didn't sound like the bands that we took our uh, more of our mindset from like the replacements or a lot of indie Southern bands or like the long riders from LA. Like those are the bands that really we felt a kinship with, but sonically we weren't with them. So I think it was really this sort of mix. I think we got replacements fans and guns and roses fans because there was something intrinsic in who we were as a band that came through. You know what I mean? We did make a little bit of an effort by the time 1990 rolled around and we were on tour as far as, you know, like in 1989, I would have gone on stage wearing like a shirt from Goodwill from a gas station that said Mike on it. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have thought twice about that. And by the time we were touring with the record, I, I mean, no one said this to me, but I just thought I kind of kind of look like the others of the guys. I don't, I don't you know, everyone's kind of looking like rock dudes and I look like a like a gas station attendant. Maybe I should just put on a black T-shirt, you know, so I started there and there were subtle things I'm sure everybody was doing. But to answer your question probably in too long winter to form, there was never a consensus, hey, we've got to do this to establish this corner of the room. 
we actually found ourselves in our own corner pretty quickly without, so we never had to think too much about it. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting thing because having you know seen the band from day one, at least you know the records and stuff. I, it, it was a band that. Uh, you know, because I very much at that time I was still working in the, I was working for a label and doing radio, and I remember when vividly when the band came out and and hearing twice as hard and all that and saying to myself, you know, th- th- there was appeal. It was certainly different and fresh, and I think that's why it jumped out. It was great; everybody loved it. But it was it appealed to the rock and roll fans. It appealed to mm-hmm. the metal fans. It, it, I mean, there was a wide appeal for the Black Crows, like seemingly from my vantage point, right out of the gate with with the record. And I thought that was a really unique thing because not a lot of bands had that, especially at that time. It was sort of like a lot of segregation. Like, okay, you were a pop metal band, you were a thrash sure. metal band, you were a retro. 70s throwback band but the black crows seem to have respect and uh and 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 a fan base that touched all of those without even really trying which you think is a really unique thing yeah and i understand that as fan and i was terribly guilty of that like as a high school kid i like i would be at a party in 1981 and two and somebody would be playing van halen one and i would be pretending not to like it because i was into the english beat you know what i mean right. like I allowed those lines to, you know, and I defined myself by the fact that I was in the new wave music and somebody put on highway to hell. And I'd be like, I'm not supposed to like this, but I would love it. You know? And I was like, and I, I would listen to those records, but I would never buy them. That was my way to maintain my <laughs> identity. You know? And I look back, I, it, it's so ridiculous, you know, because I still love all those bands now. Like I love them all. And I, uh, but, but I was very guilty of that. So when we first came out, you know, I remember seeing us in magazines, like there would be a magazine and like the band Slaughter and Winger and the Black Crows would all be in the same article. Right. And I'd go, that doesn't look right. But then I'm like, well, we wouldn't look right next to REM or the replacements either. But we're in those buildings. We're in those magazines, too. Like it was just it was yeah. You know, once you get into the industry. And by the way, I, you can't overstate how naive we were in terms of the industry, like when we were making shake your moneymaker and George Julia suggested we do an Otis Redding song, you know, we started to do hard to handle. We couldn't believe he wanted that on the album. We thought it was just a B side. I mean, we were, and he goes, guys, this is going to get some radio play. And we were uh, like radio, no radios playing this record. That was the furthest thing from our mind. So we, we had to learn a whole lot in a real hurry in 1990. Well, needless to say, it sounds like, and and it stands to reason that that first record coming out and doing so well so quickly, I mean, there's no, I, I don't think you could have the best managers, the best people around you, whatever the, whatever, the best structure you could possibly have, but there really is nothing that can prepare a young musician, mm-hmm. I would think for that sort of success to just all of a sudden and MTV was the big driver back then. And suddenly you're all over TV, all over the radio out there mm-hmm. on the road on these tours. I mean, I imagine it's a pretty daunting thing and every, it takes a little while for everybody to sort of sort of process how to handle it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and obviously it was, Chris had a very different, Chris Robinson, our singer had a very different experience than the rest of us. I remember, you know, the record came out, I think, in February of 90. And we did one national tour with a band called Junkyard. Uh, it's like six weeks in clubs opening for Junkyard. And they were a great hard rock band. Yeah, they're still out there. And they're we, still around. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And we got back to L.A. after six weeks on our first tour. 
and everywhere we went, people recognized him. And I was just like, what is happening? You know, because MTV had jumped on Jealous again by that point. And back then, I mean, if you were on MTV 10 times a day, you were famous, you know? And I mean, he's, he's a memorable looking dude and he's a front man. And, uh, you know, he lost his anonymity virtually overnight. The rest of us had a lot longer to, to ease into it, but it's also weird when you're suddenly out at a bar with your friend, but he's not your friend anymore. He's the singer in your band and he's famous. And a lot of those, you know, those dynamics can change in ways that you don't recognize in real time. And all of a sudden, you know, six months pass and we're all looking at each other and like no one even liked each other anymore. And then you have one big drink up and figure it all out. But yeah, it's a constant process of trying to check in with yourself and with each other to go, Hey, this is, this is cool, I guess, but this is kind of weird at the same time. I mean, did did that cause, an, I mean, I know, gosh, there's a myriad of issues th- that are represented throughout the book, but was that a was that an issue like when, when Chris gets, because we all know with every band, the, the spotlight, the magazine covers, the focus always go to, to usually to the lead singer. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. the lead guitar player, singer, it's the, the duo, but mm-hmm. always that lead singer. Did, did other The other guys in the band, yourself included, that's that's got to be like a sort of check your ego thing. I mean, you could have a scenario, you're in a bar, you're all hanging out, and everybody comes running to that one guy to take the picture and get the autograph. The other three, four guys are sitting there. I mean, I've been a fly on the wall in that situation, and they're kind right. of like, uh, hey, we're in the band too. And then it's almost awkward for the guy who is getting all the attention to say, well, hey, say hello to my band, because it's, it, it's just, it's just a, it's a weird thing. I've seen it happen a lot of times. Uh, how, sure. did you, how did you and the other guys handle it early on? Well, I, you know, it's, everybody has their own level of, of what they actually want out of this. And, you know, I think I was as suited as anybody to be recognized in terms of if somebody came up to me and they were a fan, I can have a conversation with them or I can do an interview or I can present this and then I can turn it right off. And it doesn't mean anything to me personally. Like to me, like getting recognized was just like doing a phoner. I thought this is just part of the job at this point. You know, the band is the band, but around the band, there's times where you have to do a job. And I just, and maybe just to maintain my sanity, I just, I never took it to mean, Oh, I'm great now. Or I didn't get anything from it beyond. This just means the band's doing well. If the drummers recognize hell, this is great. (laughs) I mean, I could literally look at it like that. Um, And you know, and for, 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 if, if we, and it's the first thing you want to do with at the end of the day, or I should say at the beginning of the day, we were all friends. Like this isn't a band that was put together through the want ads. We were friends and we would meet a guy that we liked, like Jeff Seats. We just, we hadn't even really heard him play. He was cool. So we said, join our band. Right. We thought Johnny Colt was cool. We said, join our band. He was a good bass player, but you know, it wasn't, I wasn't like Chris Robinson's idea of the best drummer possible. We were best friends. So why wouldn't we be in a band together? That's how the band came together. And so, yeah, when Chris started getting those things, you know, sometimes it would be funny and we could all make fun of the fact and we could laugh at how crazy a fan was. And sometimes Chris would think that we were doing that to make fun of him. And, you know, he interpreted a lot of our reactions as jealousy And sometimes, you know, but I would have an honest concern for him. I'd be like, dude, you don't want to go to a bar tonight. Like I would say to him, if you're going to go to a bar, dress down, put on a t-shirt and a baseball hat or something. And he couldn't let himself do that. But then we'd go to a bar and he couldn't stay because he'd be the famous rock star at this bar in Topeka. And people would be freaking out. And I'd be like, I'd go, dude, let's just go 
to a, let's not go to a bar. Let's go to a pub. Let's just go to like where the old men drink and we can sit there. And, you know, and I, I, I miss having my friend, you know, cause that's true. You do lose friends along the way. When you, when you have a friend and they become famous on a certain level, you lose a part of that friendship. And it, I could understand that being the way it was, but it also, it kind of sucked. And then on top of it, you know, fame and fortune really fast. They're not good for anybody. So, you know, I, I talk about this and if I sound reasonable right now, that's with a lot of hindsight. I'm sure at the time, whatever I was putting out in an effort to maintain some equilibrium probably looked a little weird to the other guys too. What's your, what's your takeaway? And you talk about Rick Rubin in the book, the ill-conceived idea of calling the band uh, KKK, the short, what what was it again? The law, the Cobb Cobb County Crows. Cobb County Crows. Cobb spelled K. But you know, yeah. you mentioned Rick, and obviously you recorded for his label, and there's some talk about him. But you know, in all the artists I've talked to over the decades about Rick Rubin, everybody has a different sort of takeaway from him. Some think mm-hmm. he's you know Svengali, and you know anything. Yeah. You know, there's nothing he can do that isn't great. Others, quite frankly, have told me it's it's all a ruse and they, you know, that was a sure. horrible experience. Now, looking back on Rick Rubin's role with the Black Crows and your, the band's dealings with him, what's, what's your, what's you, what do you make of, of Rick Rubin? What's your takeaway? What do you think? Well, we never worked in the studio with him, you know, so I don't know him as a producer. I've never worked on a record that he produced. Um, the first time I met him, our record had already been mastered and was in the can and waiting for release, you know, just to, just to set that up. So I don't know him as a producer. I know him as the guy that first came to Atlanta and, and, and he rubbed us all the wrong way right away with that whole Cobb County Crows thing. And at the time he was, I, I mean, my thoughts of him at the time were he's kind of a joke. I like this guy's getting one over on everybody. And I didn't, that didn't bother me. I thought, Hey, good for him. He's a wrestling fan who just loves things that blow up, and that's how he sees rock and roll music. <laughs> now, I have a very different view of him now, but that's what I thought in 1989. I didn't understand how he was so successful, but at the same time, the guy wrote the check that paid for our album, so I wasn't inclined to hate him on any level. Right. And even when I didn't like the first few meetings with him, it didn't keep me up at night. I mean, I didn't think twice about it. And then over the years, as time went, the truth is, Rick Rubin, he never actively was a part of our career, but he very well could have very actively gotten in our way, and he never did, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he owned the record company that we did our first four albums on. Every time we did anything, I mean, he never said no. You know, that, that's how I look at it now. He could have been an impediment in a million different ways. And by the time Shake Your Moneymaker took off, and we did have Pete Angelus, who's a great manager, and he established a good rapport with Rick, a good business working relationship. So it was never really a factor. Now, all this to say, in 2002 or three, the first time the Black Crows had essentially broken up, I was in L.A. and I went to see, uh, I went to buy a Tom Petty session that George was working on and Rick was in the next studio. And I just walked over to say hi. And for the first time in our lives, we had like a really long conversation. We sat there for two hours and talked about, the band and I had quit the band at that point and we talked all about life and middle age and you know you make decisions based on fear and arrogance and it was this very esoteric the kind of thing that a lot of people think about Rick Rubin as and it was honestly one of the most insightful and and, and, and wonderful conversations with anybody I've ever had in my life truly I walked away with a lot to think about 
And so when I hear Rick's name now, that's what I think of. I don't think I've seen him since that day. It's been almost 20 years. But, you know, as far as did we get along with him at first, not at all. But, you know, I, I, and all things are said. His record speaks for itself. And, of course, people don't talk about the records he made that suck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Everyone focuses on the hits. Right. But that's anybody's career. Right, totally. Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't I don't know him at all. I watched the documentary that Showtime did that that five-part doc or whatever and mm-hmm. it's it just it's fascinating, you know, the 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 sort of almost mystique and the the diff, very wildly differing views you get from people who have worked with him as a producer all. Although like you said, there's certainly, you know, there certainly is a track record there. You mentioned yeah. Pete, Pete Angelis who is the manager of the band prior to working with you guys. He was affiliated with Van Halen, David Lee Roth and all that. So when I'm reading your book and I'm the, the the madness that's going on, the ups and downs, the infighting, the drugs, the craziness, I I always think about the manager. <laughs> think about yeah. how how is he navigating all this? How is he holding this together? And, and and when you look back on what I mean the the ride he went through with with you guys and all the insanity Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty remarkable, I would think, that he hung in there. Because that's, I keep waiting, as I read your book, I kept waiting for, while there's certain members leaving and looking for new members and there's battles and there's craziness and there's records being made that never get released and money being wasted and you guys got fortunate with some record label uh, negotiations, but all that stuff, I kept waiting for, and then Pete bailed. But he seemingly yeah. never bailed. He really did hang no. in there, and oh, no. and that's that's pretty remarkable. So talk a little bit about his role, because I tell my audience all the time. I mean, there's people behind the scenes that aren't household names that are vitally important to these bands that we love staying together or what they've turned into. And judging from your book, it seems like he was really a guy that that kept it all together. Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, it's unquantifiable, honestly. And there's no way to express um, all that he did. I mean, I mean, there's there's an entire, you know, there's a 900 page book to be written about just the phone calls he fielded from the members of the band for 20 years and without losing his mind. You know what I mean? Like Pete went from a guy he flew to Atlanta to meet us in December of 89 and see the band. And we hired him a week later. And he immediately became everybody's dad and big brother and, and fortune teller and therapist. I mean, seriously, right away, he filled this gap. And the five members of the Black Crows at that time, whatever holes there were in all of our psyches that we had yet to acknowledge, he became the filler for all five of us. Um, not, not necessarily, that wasn't his plan. That's just what happened. And we went from a very, in a very short time, I'd say within a year of meeting him, it was inconceivable that any of us would make a decision about anything in our personal lives without calling Pete first. It was just that simple. He just, he told us, I, I, I know what to do. You guys worry about the music, play, record, write, and rock. I'm going to do the rest and let's get us somewhere. And two years later, we had sold 5 million records. Yeah, I and mean, that, we met him. That, and that's that's, him what, that's the ultimate weeks. thing as a musician that you want dude, from a manager, right? Dude, we met him six weeks before Shake Your Moneymaker was released. Yeah. Not six months, not not a year and a half. You know, the number of bands that get deals because they already have a manager working the, ra- the game for them. 
you know, like when we met Pete, we had never done a photo shoot except for one in Atlanta that ended up with the cover of the album on it. But we had literally done like one proper photo shoot with a real photographer ever. So the first time we go to LA in January of 90, we did like 15 photo shoots and we were like 15. Let's just do one. Well, (laughs) we thought everybody could use the same pictures forever. You know, we knew nothing. And, and he just, he, somehow knew how to give us just enough information to keep us from getting bored or more importantly, intimidated as everything developed. You know what I mean? He, I think he recognized really early on that we knew nothing about the business and that we weren't business minded and we didn't want to play the game. Like he recognized they just really want to be a band. Like they have a romanticized view of the reality they're stepping into. And I think he noticed that right away. I know for a fact he did. And he realized, okay, they're going to give me a few minutes a day about the P's and Q's and the nuts and bolts. And otherwise, they want to talk creatively. And so it worked out perfectly. And I think the real trouble that came for the band was from the third record on um, is a lot of things that sort of showed itself most overtly with Chris deciding he should produce the band and he should do the artwork and he wanted to direct the videos. But underneath all of that, the band was, you know, we started, Pete was making great business decisions and he was constantly focused on the long haul, 30 years, 40 years. I mean, he went into 1990 thinking about the year 2000. He went into 1991 thinking about 2010. You know what I mean? He was that guy. And the more we saw how the business worked and the more we got confident with our own abilities as a band, the more we allowed that to influence us to think, well, we should be a part of all these decisions and we should be, we should make the business moves too. And it just got really, it it got in the way. We had a perfect separation of church and state for two albums. And once those lines broke down, we never really put it back in place. And Pete is the one guy who never gave up ever. You know, everybody, you know, everybody quit that band over the years, multiple times. You know, a few of us actually put it in writing, but, but everybody would give up and go home here and there and everybody's heart gave out except our managers. He outworked every single member of that band from day one. A big, a big theme for throughout the history of, of the band and the book is, is substances and drugs and alcohol and, and those issues, which of course is not unique for rock bands at all. But where did he land on that? Was he somebody, because if you're, I would think if you're a manager and you've got a band and you're trying to hold it together, and you got guys that are openly, you know, fucked up and dealing with stuff yeah. and, and and stuff. You you are always on them to get clean or sending them to rehab or sending them to counseling or doing whatever you have to do. It comes off to me like he only really and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he only really stepped in in that area where it seemed like it was really out of control and was going to interfere with the live performance. Is that accurate yeah, he, or was there more behind the scenes because was he trying to manage that as well? He was trying to, he encouraged everyone individually. He had conversations with the other guys that obviously I'm not privy to. Um, but I know that he was always actively encouraging everybody to individually get their shit together. And he was constantly recommending therapy. He suggested rehab several times, but you know, as you referenced, he came to us after working with Van Halen for years. And so being around people who are in full blown drug abuse, you know, you only have to do that a few times to recognize what you're dealing with. He always had a very, I think, uh, informed and accurate view 
of the hopelessness of sending someone to rehab that doesn't want to go there themselves. Mm. If that makes sense. I mean, it was like, you know, he would suggest he would always, you know, in, in sometimes, you know, laughing to try to be easy or sometimes very out of concern and occasionally get really heavy handed. But, you know, with different members of the band and say, you have got to get your shit. To, you are. And he would always, the, the only way it ever worked, the only way you would get someone to curtail was to point out you're fucking up the band for everybody else. Right. That, that was effective saying, I'm worried about you. That doesn't work. You know, people have to be worried about themselves. Ultimately, you know, no one goes to rehab rehab. Well, I shouldn't say no one, you know, there's no absolutes, but, Going to rehab because your friends all want you to go is a recipe for disaster, generally speaking. And it sounds to me in that department, and you know, you talk about some of the struggles that different guys in the band had had. But for you personally, it sounds to me like the was. And tell me if I'm right here: the biggest demon was alcohol, or were, were drugs oh, a yeah, big factor for you? No. It sounds like you were more of a drinking guy. Oh yeah, no, I was absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I, I liked smoking pot, but I wasn't good at it. You know, I just ultimately would go to sleep. You know, it just never worked for me. I was like, man, my body chemistry sucks. I'm like, Steve, I'm like that to this day. Now that it's legal in yeah. half the country, I never, I've never was like, even though I've been in the music industry my whole life, I never had, thankfully, any issues with substances. But uh, I, yeah. I, I actually started dabbling with weed a little bit recently because I go to L.A. a lot. And it's on every corner and it's legal and I have trouble yeah. sleeping. So I'm like, I feel like I'll try it. And it's just... I am literally unproductive for like 12 hours. I'm like, I yeah, can't no, do I this. Was always, you know, weed's good on, on tour because it's like play the gig, go, you know, hang out after uh, backstage for an hour, get on the bus for a six hour drive. You're still lamped up from the gig. I've got a bunch of beer in me, but I'm still awake. Two hits off a joint, put on a good record. And then all of a sudden I'm out. You know, that, that was the effectiveness for me. I, I think I played one show in my life where I was stoned. And it was the worst experience of my entire <laughs> life. You know what I mean? Like, because everything was moving so slow in my head that I was playing really fast and I couldn't feel it. And the whole, it was the guy, remember it was gig in Indianapolis in December of 90 and the whole night, everyone looked at me like, slow down. And I'm like, it's dragon. And, and everyone's <laughs> like, okay, we're never giving him weed again before a show, you know? Well, you um, know, and it, it was the same you, well, I was going to just jump in. I'm just going to jump in real quick and say, uh, speaking of like I told you, I have sleep issues. I that one of the things in the book, I'm completely envious, and I don't know if you still have this skill. <laughs> you actually slept with Jimmy Page, not in that sense, but that yeah. story is unbelievable because you you yeah. you have the ability. Uh, at least at the time you, you did the band where you could literally shut off for 30 minutes and do like a power nap. Yeah. And I'm like, it oh, yeah. takes me two hours to try to fall asleep every night. And I'm reading that and I'm like, damn that Steve Gorman. Can you still do that? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, there are nights when I can't go to sleep at night. Like I'm laying in bed at midnight and I look up and it's two and I still have, but in the middle of the day and especially like, you know, if I'm out, I still do it. You know, my band trigger hippie, if it's a couple hours before the gig, I will close my eyes for 20 or 30 minutes. It, it, I can, I can almost do it standing up. It's just, it's just what I do. And, uh, and it, and it, it's a, it's a really easy thing for me to do. And, um, so yeah, that's the story with Jimmy was that he was always, how, what is wrong with you? You know, he was, I think the first time he saw me sleeping or I know for a fact, he, he thought I'd nodded off. He was like, 
I didn't know Steve did hard drugs, and I was, and everyone's laughing, like, no, that's just him, man. That's his thing. Yeah, that's a great. That's, I mean, I want to hit you with the Jimmy Page stuff, of course, here in a second. But leading into that, that's a great story because you're yeah. you're on the road, and and he he comes up to you, basically like went into his dressing room and you you slept on individual sofas because he wanted to attempt power napping right you want you wanted you to teach him how to take a nap before a show i mean never in your wildest dreams i think would you have ever imagined a scenario where jimmy page is asking you to basically put him to bed it's just crazy no uh, very true i mean that 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 whole experience with jimmy i always said it was it was better than a dream come true because I never thought to dream any of it. You know what I mean? It was like, well, you know, literally one day, and we had met Jimmy and jammed with him, but, it, you know, he goes, hey, do you want to be my band for the night? We'll play Zeppelin songs. It was immediately like, well, I never thought about that happening. Hell yeah. You know, it was uh, every every bit of that experience for me was it was an absolute bless. Which Which is crazy because in the lineage of the story, you are literally like – and you actually say this in the book, and I thought of it too, like the Godfather 3, which I personally think is very underrated, by the way, but in Godfather 3, the, the, uh, once I'm out, they pull me back in, that classic line. Yeah. And oh, you, yeah. you, were, you were like out the door a lot of times, and you actually had called Pete, the manager, to, to give your resignation from the band. Yeah, absolutely, and he said, yeah. t- talk about that. And he said, well, before you do that, guess who just <laughs> called? Well, yeah, it was. It, it, that's exactly it. It was uh, in the summer of '99, and this was my um, it was my 34th birthday, so I remember it very, very clearly. I called him to say, um, "Sorry, one second. I called him to say, uh, "You had enough. Had enough, man. I, you know, I, I, I know. I don't have to explain this to you. It's time." And this is two years after we had lost Johnny and Mark from the band. And I'd spent those two years just getting myself to a place where I could walk feeling good about myself. Like I had to get my shit together so I could quit. Like they, like, you know, they had left and I wanted to get out. And, and so I was ready. And so it was a big phone call for me to call Pete to do this. I mean, it really was like, you know, and at the time it was 12 years of my life, which now doesn't seem like much, but you know, at 34, that's a pretty big chunk, you know? And I was like, Hey Pete, man, you know, it's time. I got to do this. Uh, I don't think I have to explain it to you. And he's listening is okay. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Hey, listen, Steve, I get it, man. But I, I just thought I'd let you know something. And I was really, I mean, right away, I'm like, you know, I'm like waiting for him to give me the whole, don't do it. And I'll tell you why, you know, and he right. just seemed to take it in stride. And I was immediately struck like, what the fuck's going on here? You know? And he said, he goes, well, I just thought I'd let you know, I just got off the phone with Bill Kirbishly and that's Jimmy's manager at the time. Right. And he goes, and uh, Jimmy, Uh, and this is, by the way, this is a month or so after we had done this one-off gig in London where we played a 45-minute set with Jimmy Page. And that's all that was. It was, you're in London, play with me on this date in this club, and we'll have a nice night. And it was an awesome time. Well, now, six, seven weeks later, Pete goes, anyway, I just got off the phone with Kerbishley. Jimmy wants to go on tour with the Black Crows. And I just sat, I was stunned. And Pete laughed and goes, so why don't you think about that you know what call me back in five minutes how's that <laughs> and he just as and he's as i hear him putting the phone down he's i hear him laughing like literally like, <laughs> like he loved that that was the timing of that and i was like you've got to be kidding me 
And I hung up the phone and I looked at my wife and she's like, what, that's it? What do you say? Like, you know, we were both expecting a lengthy phone call. And I said, Jimmy wants to tour. And like my wife looked at me, she's like, no way. And I, and I did. I said, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I mean, I went full Pacino in that moment, you know, and, <laughs> and then I called him back and I call him right back and he answers. Hello. I said, Pete, it's Steve. And we have the exact same conversation. He goes, Hey, what's up, man? Isn't this your birthday? And I said, yeah, <laughs> well, that's not why I'm calling. He goes, Oh, what's going on? I said, nothing. What's going on with you? And he goes, well, Hey, guess what? Curbishly called Jimmy wants to tour. And I said, great. I'm in. And he goes, all right, I'll give you the details when we figure it out. And I hung up the phone going, I'm never getting out of this fucking band. What the hell? You know, but I, I it was such a great, you know, then that, of course that led to like the, the most fun, just legitimate, just fun. What you think being in a big rock band is supposed to be that next year was the most fun I ever had. Yeah, and it seemed from the book for a while at least it was very galvanizing among the band yeah, because you sure. had so many issues and and everybody just sort of mellowed out because it's like shit we're we're in a band with Jimmy Page and you know what's interesting um, I I've I've met extremely briefly twice Jimmy Page in maybe the last twenty years and the thing that I I think about is he him playing with you guys to my knowledge, and I could be wrong here, has really been the last thing he's done on a large scale in terms of public performance because he was, he's yeah, become the, the keeper of the Zeppelin catalog and all that, and that's all wonderful. But in, in all the interviews or press junkets I've seen, there's always been this interest and in him sort of saying, yeah, I'm going to put something together. I'm going to come out there. I'm going to play. I'm going to do a yeah. band. But, you know, the, I mean, he had done The Firm, he had done Page Plant, but that was all before he did the thing with you guys. And um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're still in touch with him or not, but I think, you know, time, you know, 20 years or whatever has just flown by, and he's really yep. not done anything in terms of, like, creating I new music or touring. No, no, that was his last tour, for sure. We, yeah. we You know, August of 2000 was the last time he was on the road. He sat in. You know he'll he'll jump on stage with bands over the years, and then obviously there was the uh, the big Led Zeppelin show with the O2, right? But and you know and he was gearing up for that. He wanted that to come back, and he wanted a Led Zeppelin tour, right? Pretty pretty. I mean, desperately. You know, he that's really what he really wanted. But I I I haven't seen Jimmy in four or five years. But uh, you know, I think, and I I hate to speak for the guy at all, and I I hope I'm not speaking out of school here. But the other element of all this is right after he finished touring with us he went home and got sober right and he's still sober and for the first time in his life in years he was sober and i i i would just imagine and i'm not speaking from any insight he's given me i'm just looking at jimmy page and all he had done up to that point i would imagine that uh he had a lot of things he looked at very differently now that he's completely sober and much healthier than he'd been in years and I'm sure going on the road with, you know, in his 60s and now 70s probably doesn't make a lot of sense. You know what I mean? That That's a lot of work. The Les Pauls aren't, they're, they're heavy guitars. Let's not kid ourselves. Right. And, you know, if you, if, you know, Jeff Beck never stopped playing guitar. But if you're Jimmy and you take a few years off, I, I, I can get it, man. I, I understand, like, kind of looking at it going, I've been at the very top of the mountain and, putting a whole new thing together from scratch and starting over yet again. And now I'm just finally 
living a really clear headed life. I don't know, man. I, I, I know he's, he's always very busy. He does all kinds of crap. That's just what he's doing. He's got a million interests and, and hobbies. He doesn't sit still. And I, I prefer to just assume he's really enjoying himself and finally doing things he wants to do. I would love to see him on the road again. I would have loved to have seen him working and writing and all that stuff. But at the same time, I think he's a pretty happy guy right now. And so, you know, I'm not going to begrudge him a bit for it. I, I don't want to, I've taken a lot of your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I do, you know, speaking of the Jimmy page thing, obviously one of the big storylines that came out of your book was the way it ended. And you lay that mm-hmm. story out in the book that you did that TV show and it was sort of a weird vibe. And then he just disappears and that's it. It's over. And then you later find out from him that yeah. uh, it was actually, you know, you go to see Jimmy and you, you see him in England and he pulls you aside and tells you that it was actually rich. You know, he felt uh, sort of offended because he had made an offer to make songs and work with you guys on your record. And Rich sort of said he wasn't interested. Um, that, that, that may be more than anything from this book was one of the big sort of takeaways. And I believe and correct me if I'm wrong, that since your book has come out, Rich has denied that that was the case. Um, talk a little bit about that now in hindsight. And uh, I mean, I know that's kind of a hard thing to even comprehend, and it just sort of floored you that that actually mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. You know, what, is there anything further you'd like to say about that, you know, in terms of clarity? Well, I mean, I can only go on what Jimmy told me. Um, but it did make sense. I mean, I mean, when he told me I wasn't, I, I had long suspected that something like that had to have happened. It, it, there was always a missing piece and Pete Angelus and I talked about it for a year and a half. What the fuck do we not know? What is someone not telling us? We always had that sense. And there were a few people, there are a few people in Jimmy's world, uh, who don't need to be named because anybody listening won't know who they are, who always made vague references to something went down at the hotel. And they would say that without, and they didn't want to give away Jimmy's confidence. So when he told me, I wasn't surprised that something, I knew something had happened. And when he told me, I was just so angry and irate. And, you know, if there's one thing I, the thing that really galled me, um, and I think that a lot of people, I've, I've just seen, and had a lot of people ask me about this. I wasn't upset over losing a chance to hear Jimmy Page's new riffs. I wasn't upset over what may have happened in the studio. I never even got to that point in my thought process. It was just so rude and unspeakably arrogant. And it was just such a, 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 a human error. Just on a personal level, it was so egregious that a guy whose involvement has just completely resuscitated our career is offering to do something else. And he was met with a hard, no thanks. It's just, just people stuff. And it's just so, and then, then of course add to it. Oh, and by the way, that other person, Jimmy fucking page. Yeah, that's pretty upsetting, but it was just so, one of those things where, and when he did leave from the tonight show, you know, rich didn't say a word. He, he made no comment to the news. Jimmy just went home. The tour's over. He didn't say a word. And I, and that always struck me too. He, he had an uneasy look on his face, but, at no point did he ever express sadness or confusion. He just didn't, it just didn't come up again with him. And so, you know, I, I don't know if Rich says that didn't happen. You know, Rich has got a, uh, I'd say that there's a lot of things that have happened that he would rather 
if that had happened and it had been me, I'd probably not want to cop to it myself either. So, I mean, I guess I understand it on that level. Has and anyone... with 20 years hindsight, and with 20 years hindsight, I imagine that he looks at that and goes, I can't believe I did that. And that's the last thing he wants to talk about with he and Chris announcing that the Black Crows are coming back for a tour that flies directly in the face of literally every single thing they've ever said that mattered to them. You know, violating every principle they ever expressed by touring in the way they're touring, he's certainly not going to cop to blowing off Jimmy Page. Right. I was going to ask if anybody has, since it's come out, confronted him about it since. I'm imagining they did. Oh, I, I, I'm sure, but I, I have no idea. Like, I haven't had any interaction with those guys in years. And, you know, the second they found out I was writing a book, I knew that I'll never, I'll certainly never hear from either one of them again. There's just no, that's just not who they are. I mean, that's just, so as far as what they've said or done, or I, I, I don't know, we have mutual friends, but I don't have, I don't have people calling me to go, hey, man, I just was with Rich, and this is what happened. I mean, that, that stuff got put to bed a long time ago. From a business standpoint, and you touch on this in, in the book, Steve, and I, I talk about this with my audience all the time because that second word in music business looms incredibly large, much larger than I think many fans know or, or want to realize. But, mm-hmm. you, you know, bands start out all for one, one for all, equal partnership. The way you talk about the business of the Black Crows – uh, Rich and Chris as the, uh, wrote the song, so they had the publishing, but every but you were an equal member outside of that. And then you mm-hmm. talk about the power plays that that come in, which are not surprising at all, and unfortunately not all that uncommon at all in the music industry, where the the two sort of lead members, if you will, try to salary the other guys or what have you. When right. when the band ended, and and you you know it's I love that part of the book because I love the business of music and and I love how you sort of held your ground on that. Um, you talk about publishing. You try to get the one percent. They wouldn't even give you that. But was where where when when you finally checked out of the Black Crows and the band ended, did you retain some business interest in in them or did they buy you out completely? No, no, I still have. I mean, I, you know, again, publishing is their world. But right. as far as record sales and streams, anything I played on, I still, that's still mine. That, 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 that nothing's ever changed in that regard. But how about if like a merch? You know, every record deal, every record deal we ever signed that I, that I'm a equal partner on, I still retain those rights. Absolutely. But in terms of touring, so with them going back out at some point, uh, you know, some 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 people have a, a, such a part of the band. There's still such ironclad their percentage that they get paid on shows they're not at or merch that sold mm-hmm. or what have you. Was not to get. You don't have to answer this if it's too personal. But do you have? Are you invested in the band where you you still maintain your part of all that business as well, or is it just the mm-hmm. records? No, it's the record. There are certain, you know, I mean, I mean, it is personal. As far as if they go out and tour and they call themselves the Black Crows, I'm not getting anything from a ticket they sell. And you can't I'm do anything, anything to from- stop that if you wanted to, because no, no, I, I no, because when I I quit the band at the end of 2001, the first time the band essentially broke up, I actually. Uh, and I was advised not to do this by Pete, and it was good advice. It was the only time I ever ignored his advice, and of course, it bit me in the ass. I was like, no, no, man, I'm not hanging around. I got to get away from these guys. And so I relinquished my rights to the name The Black Crows in 2001. Now, when the band reformed in 05 and I came back, at, after after I came back, I eventually got back to where I was on equal strength 
financially. Like I was, it was back to the three of us partners in that regard, but I, I never got my piece of the name back. And, and, and I can say this with the utmost sincerity, it's a much easier life that being the case mm. because, you know, they have a tour that they want to do right now and that's all well and good. But the last seven years behind the scenes, if I've been in the middle of them for those seven years, I, I it, it's just, I've had a great, I, and I, and I, again, this sounds like I'm pumping myself up. It's not the case at all. The best seven years of my life have been the last seven years, but without, uh, without hesitation, I can say that. And that wouldn't be the case if I were still fielding phone calls from lawyers trying to negotiate and, and, and keep them on the same page because they've been at each other's throats for the last seven years that, you know, in, in a way that kind of goes beyond even when the band was still together. So I'm, I'm thrilled to not have anything to do with that. And, 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 you know, I did fine. I, I I'm not someone who's counting pennies every day. I mean, I, I like money as much as the next guy, but I can say this sincerely too. I didn't drop out of college and buy a drum kit and start a band. Cause I wanted to be a millionaire. I wanted to be a guy in a band and I wanted to play music and you know, that music still means the world to me. And that's still my music. I, I don't care whose name is on it. The Black Crows is everything the Black Crows have done up until now is, is as much mine as it is anybody's in the band. And that's what I was always looking for. And I've got that. So I'm, I'm thrilled with how it all fits in the year 2020. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, obviously everything's been derailed because of the pandemic and what's going on right now. So I guess that most of their stuff is pushed into next year, uh, should it happen. But in, 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 you know, having read your book and having you been out and pulled back in a few times and not wanting it, you know, <laughs> I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. Yeah. No, no scenario in your mind whatsoever that a year from now they the, their tour hypothetically goes out and you get a call. There's no scenario that you'd like to play with them under any circumstances again. Uh, not, not to say it's a band. I would not, not to suggest the Black Crows are reuniting and we're touring. That's not interesting. Now, if if I got a call that said the Black Crows want to play a show to benefit X, Y, or Z, that's a whole different thing. You know, I, I have a brother, my brother Jim, who's one of the two people I dedicated the book to, he's got a neurodegenerative disease. It's fatal. Um, if the Black Crows wanted to play a show for multiple system atrophy, I'm there with bells on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, of course. Um, if the Black Crows wanted to play a show to somehow fund a vaccine for the COVID, of course. I mean, there's a million things where I could go get on stage and play that music with them again. But to do it just to be the Black Crows again is not on that list. Right. Um, okay, couple quick things, and I'll let you go. I promise. Yeah. I got, I got the. I'm a huge Aerosmith fan, and as am I. And I know you guys toured with them, and there's there's a couple version. There's a couple different uh, scenarios you've ha- you had with Aerosmith. But I mm-hmm. gotta say, one of my biggest uh, peeves in the music industry for touring and for bands right now is bands playing to tracks. I am an outspoken 
opponent of it, meaning I, you know, people canning vocals and can't, you know, lip syncing and all this yeah. nonsense. It makes me click, nuts. Click track. Yeah, stuff, well, yeah. Cl- whatever. But I just, you know, the, the especially with electronics and what's happening now, you go to a festival and you hear somebody yelling about how great a band sounded. And it's like, I could have sounded that way because it's not real. I mean, it makes me mental. And I speak out about it all the time. And knowing the Aerosmith guys and having seen them so much, now, I don't remember having seen them on the Pump Tour, and if I did, but I was floored, and I, and I loved how annoyed by it you were at the time that Aerosmith yeah. were using tracks because the, the thing that's crazy about it, Steve, is they're one of the bands I point to at least in the last 15 years or so as a prime example of a band that does it right because I know for mm-hmm. a fact they don't anymore. They carry a guy with them that plays yeah. keys and sings. They don't hide them. Steven introduces them. So they do yep. keep it real and live and sloppy the way I want it from them. But back then, you, 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 you know, loving an elevator or whatever, that was, they were running tracks. That's a, that blew me away when I learned that in the book. I think you know. I think there's a lot of artists that were doing that. Oh, yeah. that don't anymore. That don't that don't anymore. Well, I'm that's saying. good to hear. Yeah, there's I mean, a lot I mean, that still do. The, <laughs> the same thing happened with Robert Plant. You know, Chris called Robert Plant out publicly in 1990, and Plant said, "Yeah, you know, he's right, bastard." And then he stopped doing it. Yeah. And and we toured with ZZ Top in '91, and it was all loops and whippy doo gadgets, but. You know, those bands get themselves into arenas, or different artists have a different trajectory, and at first. I, I, you know, looking back now, it, I mean, it's a tool and bands can use, it's either a tool or it's a crutch. And if it's a crutch, then piss off. If it's a tool and it's actually adding something and making something somehow better, then great, you know, use it, whatever it is. I mean, I prefer just instruments. I, I'm, I will forever want to see a, a drummer bass, a couple guitars and a singer and maybe a keyboardist. What do you got? That's my favorite thing in the world. Um, but you know, my, my, my thought on all that is if it's a crutch piss off and if it's a tool, good for you. Yeah. I got no problem if it's an effect or you got one song with keyboards in it. You don't want to carry a keyboard player. I'm seeing instruments. I'm seeing vocals. I'm seeing lead vocal lip syncing. And I'll tell you, you're right. For the people that do have the balls to call it out. And, and that's the one thing that puts a halt to it because then the artists get, paranoid about it like oh come kind of i might be outed here i've got to stop doing it but i hear about it from all the time every year bands that are on festivals the band on before the band on after me set up their laptops everybody's running around talking about how great they sounded and i'm over here working my ass off to sound great it's just it's really it's really a a shitty thing and it makes me crazy and i was i I thought that was uh you know fascinating part uh, of the many great things in the book last thing is on this so the book's been out a little bit. Have you heard from anybody about it, negatively or positively, from the band? Has there been any dialogue with Chris or Rich or any of the guys that were you were in the band with during this, since this book has been out and you know made some waves? Ha- has there been fallout? Or, or Yeah, the easiest, I can explain, I can answer that very easily. I've not talked to anybody named Robinson. I've talked to pretty much everybody else. And, and everybody else has said some version of thank you so much. I got a lot of closure from this. I, I, it, it, it struck all the right chords. I can't believe you actually told it like it happened. Um, I've heard from people beyond the band, from the crew members. 
I've heard from promoters and promoter reps and radio DJs and PDs. And uh, I mean, I mean, literally, literally dozens of people from the record companies we worked with people I hadn't seen since the nineties. I've, I've heard from all thanking me and the word closure has been used a, a, a whole lot of times. Um, and I, Never once did I think that was going to be a part of this. It just didn't occur to me to think, I wonder what all those people that were ever on the periphery of the band are going to think. But I can tell you it's been very gratifying having heard from all these people, re- you know, started up relationships again, you know, people I always cared for. And there's a lot of people that just sort of fell off the grid from the Black Crows. And a lot of those people have gotten a hold of me to tell me why they left. And they're very painful stories. No one ever left the band in a good place. Is, is is you know very few people ever did I should say, and I don't mean the band. I mean the like you said. There's so many people around any successful band, and a lot of those people got in touch to thank me for writing it and to say it, it gave them a real sense of peace and closure after years of not feeling that way. One of the things you say right at the start of the book, I believe it's at the start, which which was so rang so true to me, is is that you're you're very clear on saying that this is your take on this story these are your recollections and that if yeah. somebody else wrote a book it's probably going to come off in a different way and they're going to have a different recollection and, and with so many rock autobiographies out there that's something that very few people sort of say right up front and i always get into with the audience all the time because you can have like um you know, I don't know. I grew up a big Kiss fan, right? The four original members have all written books. Every one of them has a different take on what happened, of course. and sort yeah. of you know out somebody else as being the the the, the guy who, who screwed it all up. But you you were very cognizant of that going in. You you said, look, this is my take, the best I can tell it, the best I remember it. But if those guys write a book, it's probably going to be a different version of this. Hey, I I was in a band with guys for twenty seven years that we would be on a conference call. And Pete, me, Chris, and Rich, four people on a conference call. The phones hang up. Right away, I get a call from Rich, and he can't believe this, 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 and this. And then Chris calls me, and he can't believe this, 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 and this. And I say the same thing to both of them. What the fuck are you talking about? No one said that. You, you completely misinterpreted every word out of your brother's mouth. And they, you know... So we were hearing, we were receiving information in a different way, and we were perceiving everything differently from the jump, and I was always very cognizant of that. I mean, you know you know when you're hanging out with people, and I'm a good storyteller, I'll get up in the morning and we talk about, oh man, last night at the bar, that was crazy, and you know, you can milk a story for an extra laugh, but when you hear somebody tell the same story for years, and every time they tell it, it's entirely different, you're going, okay, <laughs> like I'm... We're, we're, we're all very different people here. We're all remembering and filing away experiences in a very different way. And, you know, you know, Chris is the kind of guy who, you know, you know, everything revolves around Chris and that's an essential part of a band hitting the road. You know, you want your singer to feel like he's the center of the universe. If you're a front man in a traditional rock and roll band, your dude better get, you know, he's following in Mick Jagger's footsteps and Steve Marriott's footsteps and Otis Redding's footsteps for that matter. And if he doesn't think he's the most important some bitch in the world, he's not going to go very far. But, you know, you get and that's great for opening doors. But once those doors are open, that sort of thing runs its runs its course with the people closest to him pretty quickly. And I mean, it's purely coincidental timing wise, because you said when you started writing this book that this book happened to come out 
right around the time those guys reconciled and announced they were going to put a band together and go out well, again. That, that, well, 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 that announcement, I, I knew that was happening long before the book was released. Um, it, that, that was brewing for quite a while. Um, and, and, you know, I was hearing about it from all kinds of people. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't write that into the intro of the book only because, it's not my, you know, but great. Go ahead. Whatever. I, yeah, I didn't. It, it, the fact is I thought about it because I could have changed it up until a few months before it was released. And I could have said any day now they're about to announce this new tour. And I, and I didn't do it because it, it just smacked of me trying to be a smart ass. Like, see, you know, and that, I have no interest in that. I mean, I, I didn't feel like I had some giant scoop. I wasn't trying to up, upstage whatever. They're free to do whatever they want. But that thing was that was brewing for a long time. Well, I got to say this, Steve, in, in closing, is that. So so having heard about the book before I read it and everyone telling me how great it was and then reading for myself and loving it, I thought that I was going to finish this book and be like, what's the word I'm looking for? I thought I was going to be sort of, um, you know, it turned off to the band or utterly shocked at what I read in it at what went on. And I got to be honest with you. I wasn't, I love the book to death, but it was sort of, sort of in the space where I thought it was going to be. I, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't shocked by anything that I had really read given what I had heard. And here, right. here's the other thing. Okay. So the, these guys may, um, be upset with you and i imagine they are in in writing this book but i don't think w- there's a long history of rock sort of tell-alls if you will that have actually made the legacy of the band bigger that have actually sure. grown the band i mean whether it's the the history of dysfunction in bands is not a unique thing whether it's the stones or whether it's motley crew or any of these bands these the all these members have told stories and and thrown people under the bus in my opinion you know way more and just i in other words i, I this didn't come off to me as you trying to sensationalize anything i think you told no. the story as you saw it and i don't think if I'm Chris and Rich, and I don't, I don't know Rich at all. I met Chris uh, a couple times, which is uh, Chris, j- taking a detour here. Neil Cassell, who passed away recently, yeah, was a guy that I literally grew up with in New Jersey. I knew Neil when he was a kid in a metal band in New Jersey, long before mm-hmm. he got into the the whole world of you know Chris and yeah. all that. So I met Chris through Neil a few years ago, actually at Sirius XM, and we had a very cordial quick little discussion but i don't i don't uh look at this as your book as being a detriment to the history of the black crows if i was those guys i would not look at this maybe they don't like the fact that you wrote it but i don't think it hurts them in any way at all and his the history of rock autobiographies like this support that if anything it builds the legacy do you agree? Sure. Yeah, and to your point, they're yeah they're angry that I wrote a book, not about what's in it, and and I think that speaks to why they are where they are in the world. They think the Black Crows is about them, and who is Steve Gorman to write a book? Well, I was there for twenty seven years, and and the book's really not about them. It's about the, the the unspoken 
unacknowledged extra character in the book is my willingness to put up with things that I didn't feel good about and my codependency that kept me there years after I was questioning on a daily basis that this is where I wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, so ultimately it's a book about me and people that I cared very deeply about and all the stupid shit we did. And along the way, Oh, by the way, we were a fucking great band for a while. That's how I look at the book. It's about people. Yeah. And it's about people where it's about, it's about drug addiction and codependency and loyalty and betrayal and all of those things. And I think that that's the only, that's like I said earlier, I could only write a book when I finally realized it's a, it's ultimately a sad story because we could have been a 50 year band. We had the right manager. We had the talent. We put ourselves in our own lane and we didn't have to bend anything to the whims of the music industry. We were in a very rarefied place four years into our career and we blew it in that regard. Um, that doesn't mean we weren't a great band. It doesn't mean that we still didn't have great moments and huge highs and all kinds of great things. And it doesn't mean my life hasn't been exponentially benefited by being in the black crows. I mean, all of that stuff factors into this. And so I would never want to do anything to diminish the legacy of the band. I did a lot of book events when it came out and there would be fans. And I know these books are hard to read for people who worship the members of the band who are diehard fans of us individually. And, and I, I had several people go, I'm like, man, I can't even listen to the records anymore. And I said, no, my God, no. If, if you take away the music, all that's left is this book. <laughs> you know, all that's left is the dysfunction. My God, the whole point of this is these crazy people still got together and made some great fucking records. And that's, that's great. And in 1987, if you'd handed me that book and, re- and I read it and then said, you still want to sign up? I would have been like, hell yeah, let's go. Yeah, for me, it was a complete opposite effect. For me, it made me pull out the records and want to listen to them again. For me, it got me on YouTube. Uh, You would talk about specific shows, Pink Pop, this or that. that Eddie, I've heard that from so many people. And I'm thrilled about that. I mean, I would be, honestly, I would feel like I did myself a huge disservice if people were like, I fucking hate the Black Crows now. You no, know, like, the opposite no, for me. That's not what I want to have happen at all. Nope, the opposite for me. It gave me it, because Great. again, it's not. This is not like yes. I, I there was a lot of dysfunction and a lot of problems and a lot of egos and all that. But that there's a lot of that in a lot of bands. Maybe not to this degree. Um, so to well, me, the, the 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 end products that came out of it, much of it, so good. It made me sort of embrace it even more, and it made me like. Like I said, you would talk about a specific show and a dust-up backstage or whatever. I'm like, I wonder if that's on YouTube and I can see that. Or yeah. knowing that what was going to happen after. Well, let me watch that yeah. performance if I can find it. So it set me on a whole you know, new sort of uh, appreciation for the band. Yes, of course, you have that regret of like what could have been. But man, what's there is still pretty damn good. Oh, yeah. Like when I say I have regrets, it's always in a very healthy context of, you know, I, I mean, if you're a, you know, it's like if you're the guy that's the, if you come in seventh at the Olympics, you can be bummed out, but you're still the seventh fastest <laughs> motherfucker on earth. You know what I mean? Like, it's still okay, dude. I'm sorry you didn't get the gold medal. And I, I really did think we could have been the next Aerosmith or the next Stones. I mean, so that sucks. But guess what? It's all still pretty great. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I'm fine being the seventh fastest sprinter on earth. Trust me. All right, Steve, I, I know I said we're going to end and I'm going to let you go, but this, I promise <laughs> you, is the last thing. I want to get this from yeah. you. Your favorite Black Crows album 
and your favorite Black Crows moment being a member in the band, whether it was a live show, a moment, anything. So give me your favorite well, moment the, in your history of the band, and what, what do you think is the definitive Crows album? Southern Harmony is the definitive Crows album, our second album. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only album I can listen to, and I don't have any question marks in my head. You know what I mean? It's, it's perfect to me. Um, uh, favorite moment. I mean, honestly, if you asked me tomorrow, something else would pop in, you know what I mean? Like there would be some other thing, but, um, and this isn't even really, well, I I have so many, but I just, I, I, the first thing that occurred to me was this in 2001, we played a gig in Brescia, Italy. And it was like in a little, in the little town square, the plaza, you know? And so it's like a 5,000 people crammed into this rectangle with a fountain in the middle around an old 500 year old village. And we were opening for crazy horse. We were, we did a month in Europe with Neil Young and crazy horse, which was phenomenal. Which you talk about in the book, you guys passed on bigger money with Bon Jovi to go with Neil Young, right? right? Yeah. Yep. And so at the Brescia gig, we're playing and it's just beyond scenic. I mean, it looked like something out of a movie about a cool gig. You know, it was beyond the normal gig because it's sunset in Italy and the fans are having the time of their life and we're rocking it and they are giving it to us and we're giving it back. And it's just this magic moment. And I looked over to the, my left to my monitor guy to say something very important, like more bass, you know, and Neil Young is standing behind him. And, and the next night at this very same stage, Bob Dylan was playing. So Dylan was there watching us and he came down the night before so I look over to my monitor guy and standing right behind him is Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And the two of them are watching us and talking to each other. Like they're looking at the band yeah. and talking in each other's ears back and forth. And we were playing my morning song. And I remember just, I'm just you know, it's a really heavy, intense song. And I just stared at them the whole time. And I was like, Bob Dylan and Neil Young, what the fuck are they talking about? And then in my <laughs> mind, I'm thinking they're probably saying, man, check out that girl in the front row in the yellow shirt. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, they're just dudes. They're just, they're not talking about each other's songs. I guarantee it. You know no, they're, I mean? they're probably, was, I say this to fans all the time. I'm like, you know, because they'll be like, oh, you were backstage, whatever show, man, what was going on back there? I was like, oh, we were talking about what cholesterol meds you're on or who's, you know, when are you getting your colonoscopy? Yeah. I'm like, it's not what you usually think it is. <laughs> I remember once in 94, I think, we were in New York City and we were doing a bunch of MTV stuff ahead of the third album release and some club gigs and it was all promo crazy. And we jumped into a van to run uptown and we're like screaming up Third Avenue or, or, or Sixth Avenue. And uh, it's, just, it's just in the middle of this manic thing. And somebody had just bought a new vacuum cleaner. And I don't remember, this is all I remember. I think Johnny was like, man, I got this vacuum cleaner, man. It's amazing for pet hair. And I'm like, what's it called? And then Rich, oh man, I need one of those. And we were, and my sister had jumped, she lived in New York and she's in the van with us. And the whole band got engaged in a, in a conversation about vacuum cleaners and pet hair. And we jumped out and we're like walking into MTV and there's a bunch of fans there. And my sister looks at me and she goes, if these people knew what you guys right. were just talking about, I was like, Hey man, you got to get these important homeowner conversations in when you can. You know what I mean? We're exactly. all to, you got to take these tips when you get them. Uh, anything you want to mention, anything you want to plug about what you're doing now or anything you want to tell the fans before I let you go? Um, well, the book is now out in paperback, so that's good. It's, uh, 
and I read the audiobook version too. So for oh, anyone that, that prefers audiobooks, um, I left it all on the court on that one, baby. Um, let's see. I, I have a new radio show. I have a classic rock show, uh, Westwood One, that's syndicated nationwide called Steve Gorman Rocks. That's at night, wherever you may be. And you can go to stevegormanrocks.com and find out where to listen to that. And then my band Trigger Hippie was up and running and like every other band in the world just came to a screeching halt. But whenever the green flag waves again, Trigger Hippie will be back and, uh, and, and very busy. So I look forward to that day just like every other musician I know. Yep, same same here, man. Seeing the bands coming back and getting back out on the road and getting back to uh, shows is something we're all hopefully looking forward to soon. Uh, Steve, I can't thank you for enough for the time. Again, the book is called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. It is one of the best rock books I've, I've read, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it was great. Great talking to you, and, uh, and, and well, be well. Okay, thank you. Well, dude, I, I really appreciate it, and I feel like I already know you. It's insane that we've never crossed paths in all these years, but... Uh... Yeah, it really but is. I was, I was really happy to hear from you. So uh, cheers to you for that, man. Thanks. Yeah, man. Well, you got my info. Please stay in touch and uh, and keep me posted. And I'm I'm looking forward to the sequel. You got another 600 pages sitting <laughs> around. Get them out there, man. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there one of these days, baby. All right. Take care, Steve. Cheers. Thank you, man. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Man, I had a blast talking to Steve. Could have talked to that guy forever. So much stuff. So much great stuff in that book. And I appreciate him taking the time. And I hope you enjoyed this exclusive interview found only right here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast with Steve Gorman. I thank Katie Irizarry for putting it all together for me as usual. Greatly appreciated. I thank you for listening. See you next Thursday for another all-new episode. And remember to follow me on Twitter at Eddie Trunk for up-to-the-second news info and updates all the other social media as well, simply at my name. You guys have a great week. Again, check out Steve's book. Uh, We just scratched the surface in that 90-minute-plus conversation. That's how much great stuff is in there. It's really phenomenal. Have a great week, everybody. I'll catch you next Thursday for another all-new episode, podcastone.com, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts. Take care. (laughs) 